Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which is a friendly and inclusive community. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, we're back again with Eldon Layton. After a long career at the Seeing Eye, Eldon founded the International Working Dog Registry, or IWDR. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, where Eldon talked about his career before the IWDR, definitely check that out before listening to this one. In this episode, he tells us all about the IWDR, how it helps gather large populations of dogs together to provide more data and analyze that data to help breeders improve their breeding decisions, and whether it's useful for more than just working dogs. Spoiler, yes it is. Eldon, thank you so much for coming back and making the time to talk to us again. Um, It's fabulous to get so much of your time. So I think that We had talked about estimated breeding values and how useful they are for breeding guide dogs successfully in our last talk. And so anybody who missed that, I strongly encourage you to go listen to that talk first, that interview first, before trying to tackle this one. Um, But I guess my opening question for you today is if estimated breeding values, which we'll call EBVs, are so great, then are all guide dog schools using them? Or if some guide dog schools are not using them, why not? That's a great question, Jessica. Um, At this point in 2020, I can name three organizations for sure that are using estimated breeding values and a fourth one that possibly is using them. Those four are four of the largest guide dog organizations in the world. Uh, There is not a service dog organization I am aware of which is using EBVs. And that raises the really interesting question, why not? And the reason is because it requires organizing data into a uniformly coded uh, scheme where records can be properly cleansed and um, made useful for feeding into the uh, EBV calculation routines. Uh, And only when you have done all those things and laid the proper foundation and groundwork are you able to actually calculate EBVs and make them readily available. So what we're doing in IWDR is providing a method for doing the, the, the proper coding of records as they're entered and maintaining those records in a way that ultimately uh, makes it easier to begin using those data to calculate estimated breeding values. So that's the real purpose of IWDR and the role it plays. And uh, <clears throat> that's why most organizations haven't used it because they're not large enough to create a database of their own. And even if they were large enough, uh, there are only a few of these working dog organizations 
that produce enough puppies where the dynamics of uh, population biology would enable the, the use of estimated breeding values to actually work. So you basically need a big population and the guide dog schools are split up into lots of little populations. And so that being a problem for them, then uh, IWDR came along, which I, I don't recall whether we talked in, I'm not sure that we actually got to talk about that in our last episode. So let's, and I'm hoping we can really focus on it for this episode. So, um, so you saw a need to bring these little populations together into one big population, basically. Uh, we did, and uh, we were actually uh, encouraged in that uh, in that venture or adventure by a golden retriever breeder who desperately wanted to use these techniques to genetically improve dogs she produces but there was absolutely nothing available there there are commercial databases written for uh, use by dog breeders but they all just focus on standard pedigrees and and they do a, a basic calculation of inbreeding on every dog. But there's nothing any place in the world which is a globally accessible tool for uh, capturing the data in a way that it's uh, intended from the, from the get-go to calculate EBVs. And so these small organizations all had a desire. Uh, we've been talking about and teaching or these organizations about estimated breeding values since at least 2006. Um, and they, they wanted to use them, but there simply was no tool available. So we finally decided the only way such a tool was going to be uh, possible was if we created it. And who was we? Uh, Jane Russenberger and I are the two primary uh, people. We also received a ton of help uh, from a good friend and wizard at programming, uh, Kevin Keemer. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away two years ago, and so we uh, <clears throat> have replaced his uh, help with my son, Samuel, uh, but Sam doesn't have the experience of Kevin, so Sam is learning and uh, is a wizard at things that Kevin was not, and so he's taking on a new role and helping us do the programming. But uh, uh, we really miss Kevin as well, and at the same time, we're extremely appreciative of having all of Sam's help. So yeah, that's a big loss. It's, that's the it's... team. It's a uh, it's a team of three, and has been a team of three basically from the get go. So when did this, when did you pull this team together? It happened gradually over time. Jane and I have tried to figure out exactly when <laughs> uh, we, we started really talking about it in earnest. Uh, we think it was 2008 or 2010. I didn't realize it was that long ago you'd been talking about this. Could have been 2012, but... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, we've been working on it, it seems like, forever. <laughs> so. 
So, and, and my recollection is that you, you three basically started building it just as its own thing. And we'll, we we'll can talk in a minute about how it's now part of, um, uh, IWDBA International Working Dog Breeders Association. Breeding Association. Breeding Association. Um, but at first you, you three just put it together yourselves. <clears throat> so what were your, what were your goals for it? What did you want it to be able to do? We wanted it to enable many small working dog groups to work together in a collaborative way with data that were all uniformly coded so they could all have benefit of the estimated breeding values. Um, that was its basic goal from the, from the beginning. And <clears throat> that, that really hasn't changed. Um, in the process though, we've, We've enabled IWDR to manage, to, to be a, a tool for managing a complete organization if they want to do it. It has modules now for enrolling new clients, for uh, monitoring um, contacts with existing clients. It has another module for uh, recording uh, complete information from a veterinary clinic's perspective. Uh, for organizations that have their own in-house veterinarians. Um, so it's it's a really complete record-keeping system, um, now pretty well complete, at least for meeting the needs of guide and service dog organizations. That is uh, it's actually more functionality than I knew that it had. Um, and as you were talking, it suddenly dawned on me that I don't think we ever said what IWDR stands for, and I'm pretty sure that's going to be in the title of the podcast episode, so people should be okay with that. But why don't you go ahead and say what it stands for anyways? <laughs> well, we, we cast around for a while for an, an appropriate name for this database, but um, <clears throat> I, I still remember when I was uh, out on an exercise walk uh, arriving at the notion it was IWDR, the International Working Dog Registry. And at that point, we were also considering uh, IWDBA as the organization that should own IWDR. So all the IWDs just fell together, and now people get totally confused about who owns what and what is <laughs> what is IWDR? What is IWDBA? Are they the same? Are they different? Is one an organization and is one a database? So yes, so IWDBA, the International Working Dog Breeding Association, is the organization that owns IWDR, the International Working Dog Registry. So the important way to remember it is the one with DB in the name is not the database. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but surely IWDR is going to take over the world and own everything at some point. Uh, well, it, it still is the only database I, can, I, I am aware of with a worldwide focus that uh, is intended from the get-go to enable uh, dog breeders to use estimated breeding values. Yeah, which is incredibly valuable. And so theoretically, it can build EBVs for health traits, because you said you're collecting information from veterinary records. And can it build EBVs for uh, behavior traits as well? How are you collecting behavior information? 
in the guide and service dog world, there's a uh, a tool known as the behavior checklist, which has been uh, slowly a, uh, adopted by a wide number of organizations as a tool for scoring aspects of behavior. And that's the tool that we have primarily built into IWDR. Uh, there's a second tool that we don't yet have programmed, but there are a few organizations using Dr. James Serple's Canine Behavior Assessment Research Questionnaire, uh, also known as CBARC. And the genesis of both CBARC and the Behavior Checklist go back to the, the seeing eye in the 19, uh, well, no, in the early 2000s. I think the first paper Dr. Serple published on the CBARC was in 2002. Uh, <clears throat> but in order to publish that paper in 2002, of course, he had to do a lot of work beforehand. And a good bit of that work began with a project at the Seeing Eye, where the Seeing Eye wished to gain information from puppy raisers, um, but they wish to gain that information in a coded format where it was standardized across all puppy raisers so we could use those data for summary and, and to look at trends and so forth. Um, so the seeing eye actually uh, uh, engaged in a collaboration with Dr. Serple to try and uh, crack that nut, if you will, and so he did. Um, he developed first a questionnaire that was a predecessor to the CBARC and decided that it worked so well, he thought he could build one that was more general and would work for any uh, canine-human interaction situation where a dog lived with a group of people who would come to know over time the the idiosyncrasies of that dog quite well, and they would be able to describe that with uh, answering these 101 questions that make up the CBARC. And so he, he and uh, uh, a, a collaborator of his, Yu Ying Su, took up the, the challenge of developing CBARC, uh, and that became the, the CBARC that is currently uh, the, the validated uh, tool for uh, use by the general public. But part of the validation process for developing CBARC was uh, to use a uh, what's now a shortened version or the original version of the behavior checklist as a tool uh, for the trainers of the seeing eye to provide independent scores on a different metric uh, of dogs that uh, came back to the seeing eye after having been scored by their puppy raisers using the CBARC. And his objective in, in that process was to see, did these trainers who uh, clearly know dogs and dog behavior rather well, they've been senior trainers at the seeing eye for you know, decades <clears throat> in some cases, uh, did they see the same behaviors uh, and could they describe those in an independent way using the behavior checklist 
that were recorded for those same dogs using the sea bark. So those two tools uh, kind of were developed hand in hand, um, but the sea bark has received the most attention because it was the validated uh, tool and he had other uh, methods of validating it that are recorded in his papers. But the sea bark uh, was intended in the beginning just as that uh, uh, one component of the total validation process for sea bark. Um, the sea bark, though, at 101 questions is really quite long and, and rather laborious to fill out. And in general, uh, puppy raisers are only being asked to, do, to use the sea bark or to fill out a sea bark when pups are six and 12 months of age. So they're asked to do that twice in the seeing eye scheme. Um, <clears throat> other organizations use it in somewhat different ways, I, I think, but um, the BCL, the behavior checklist, is a much shorter list of questions. And uh, at some point, Jane Russenberger saw the BCL as a, uh, uh, a potential alternative for scoring aspects of behavior in uh, guide dogs. So she worked with Dr. Serple to add some questions to the behavior checklist to cover components of guide dog behavior that were not covered uh, in the original set of questions. And that is the uh, genesis and the evolution of behavior of the behavior checklist that is now a part of uh, IWDR. And we now have enough records gathered on IWDR that we're in the process of doing statistical analyses of those data, um, looking uh, at, at all sorts of uh, questions that can be answered, uh, such as, um, can the 52 items that comprise the current BCL be reduced to a smaller subset of factors that describe aspects of behavior uh, in fewer uh, components than 52 questions? Uh, that's one, one part of, what's, of the work that's being done. Uh, then we're looking also at uh, test, retest, uh, uh, well, what, what's the, yes, reliability, thank you. So uh, if a person uh, scores a dog uh, today using the behavior checklist and they see that same dog uh, three or four days later or some few days later and they score that dog again, do they score similarly? Uh, there's been some work already done preliminarily uh, to indicate that, yes, the skilled observers do score the dogs similarly. And, of course, the dogs on day two, whenever that might be, are not the same in the, exactly the same circumstance they were in on day one. So there will be variation, but you expect to see similar aspects of behavior if the tool is going to be useful. And so we're, we're attempting to do all those analyses, and we've got help from uh, skilled scientists elsewhere in the world helping us do those analyses. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to be on some of those calls and watching that progress. It's really exciting. That's going to be a great paper when it comes out. I'm 
really looking forward to it. Um, so people, by the way, people who want to know more about the behavior checklist or BCL, um, I did an interview with Jane Russenberger, one of my earlier podcast interviews, and she talked about the BCL a lot. Um, but so basically, in summary, uh, we've got the CBARC, which is survey-based, already validated. Um, so you're using that where surveys are what is, is on offer. And then the BCL is something that is more intended for someone to be actually trained to use. And they both have their experience with the dog over however long they've known the dog, but then also think they often or maybe always have a in-person uh, temperament or behavior assessment where they actually go do an, an in-person test with the dog generally. Is that right? Uh, generally. Um... <clears throat> That's how Guiding Eyes uses the behavior checklist, and that's how Jane has been teaching other guide dog schools to use it. Uh, but it's a it's a scoring tool. It's it, I think it's important to to recognize that it's simply a method for describing aspects of behavior in a uniform scoring scheme, and the there's not necessarily any right or wrong score necessarily for each question, but if a dog exhibits a behavior that's on the less desirable end of the scale for a particular, uh, for that behavior, then that's probably a dog you don't want to continue working with for that particular job, but that dog could be well suited for some other job. And uh, so the, the tool has that utility to it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's used in a variety of settings. Guiding Eyes actually uses it for scoring puppies in puppy test, and that's a very defined protocol that uh, has evolved at Guiding Eyes over uh, at least a decade and a half, maybe two decades. Uh, then they also use it when they uh, observe dogs in what they call walk and talk situations, and Jane probably talked a lot about walk and talks. And then uh, it's used again when the dogs come back to begin training um, at Guiding Eyes at least, they all come back on the same day and in a, a very predefined and well-defined uh, uh, in for training test, the dogs are put through about a 15 minute protocol to see how they react. and. Uh, it's it's very standardized, and so it it removes that source of variation to some extent about variation from uh, different test settings. Although from month to month, there may be different people uh, to some degree doing parts of the test. Um, it's a it's a standardized protocol. So the the behavior checklist has utility in all those situations, but it could be used by anyone who's been trained to use it, uh, observing a dog at, um, in, in any kind of daily activity. So I think it has general utility. That is good to know. I had been thinking of it as more specific for having the, um, that in-person formal test, but that's good to know that it would be, it could be useful more generally. So then, so so then you have these behavior assessments for the dogs, uh, which people can use to decide whether to go forward with them or not. But then because those are entered into the IWDR's database, um, you can generate EBVs based on them to help schools make breeding decisions. So 
Have you generated EBVs yet for health or behavior traits? Um, we began calculating an EBV for the pen hip score of uh, hip quality about a year ago now. It's It's been almost that long, I think. Um, and that's updated every night uh, by routines that run in the database. Um, we have an animal breeder working with us uh, at the moment who is developing the workflow pipeline to calculate breeding values on other aspects of health and behavior. Um, for health, he's working at the moment on um, a, an EBV for an extended view hip score. Um, and that's an interesting one because worldwide, there are multiple schemes for scoring hips uh, in the extended view, uh, much like the OFA's score here in the US. Uh, but there's an FCI score, there's a BVA score in the UK and Australia, New Zealand. Uh, all of those are different than the OFA score, uh, but all of them intend to provide a, a clue about which hips have uh, confirmation that the uh, radiologists believe is the most desirable and which uh, hips are uh, already showing signs of osteoarthritic change. And uh, our, our approach with those has been to uh, give them a score code which takes the, the best and the worst and those uh, intermediate levels uh, and, and recodes them in a way that we think reflects the same general information. And so on a one to five scale, we have hips from the worst at one to five that are best. And a preliminary analysis of that indicates that it's uh, uh, something close to 30% heritable and certainly a trait that uh, should respond to selection provided that organizations are giving us um, all the data on most pups born in a litter. And that's a really key point that um, uh, many organizations fail to fully understand. They often want to do uh, radiographs on just a few dogs. If hip dysplasia is a problem, uh, they will radiograph the dogs that are their prospective breeders uh, with the uh, with the notion that if they choose the best ones from those, they will be choosing dogs that are uh, less likely to uh, transmit genes for hip dysplasia to their offspring. And that might be true, but it can be very misleading because uh, a trait like the extended view hip score, which is uh, heritable in the in the 25 to 30 percent range uh, is a trait that requires a lot of information about not just a single dog's phenotype but also the phenotypes of many of its close relatives and if you look carefully at the OFA website about how they recommend uh, breeders use the OFA hip score they will say uh, you should choose a dog with a uh, an good or excellent hip score itself, uh, 
that comes from a litter where most of the dogs in the litter have good or excellent hips and comes from parents with good or excellent hips and grandparents with good or excellent hips. If you put all that information together, what you've really said is that's a, 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 a second way of trying to assess uh, the, the value of or the quality of hips in a single dog's relatives by just kind of a back of the envelope calculation of an estimated breeding value. But if you really look at the OFA database and you try and do that with the records that are published in the publicly accessible records, what's missing is most information about dogs that are dysplastic, that don't have good hip scores uh, because owners refuse to allow that to be published. And uh, you, you, you get a very biased reading of what the relatives of a dog really look like with respect to hip quality. So it, it's really important to have recorded in the database and IWDR in this case, information about as many uh, relatives of a dog as possible. So we continue to try and push that point and we, we talk to our uh, subscribers about the need for doing that. And some of them are beginning to, to radiograph all the dogs born in every litter. I was really lucky at the seeing eye that that was a point they understood early on and they regularly evaluate all dogs that come back for training. So, um, and, and they, they make that evaluation for every trait that's a, an important health trait. Yeah, it's, it's important. The computer can't figure out what's going on unless it has all the data, right? You can't just give exactly. it the good points. It has to understand the bad points too. And that's, I think a lot of people still feel like, um, traits like hip dysplasia, they sort of are still thinking of it in the simplistic terms, like how um, Mendel studied the peas, that there's just a couple genes, but there's a lot of genes <clears throat> interacting and to try to piece that out, the computer really needs to see the good, the bad, the stuff in between um, in order to get you the information. Exactly, and I, I uh, when I have the opportunity, I, I often make the statement that the most valuable information to have with respect to improving hip quality is which dogs are dysplastic. Uh, that's often the, the piece of information that's missing. If you look at the, uh, the calculation of EBVs for hip quality based on only on shades of normal, you get a quite different view of, of uh, the presence of, of hip dysplasia in the population than if you could look at all the uh, scores of all dogs, uh, including those that are the worst dysplastic. And one of the big criticisms of the OFA over decades now has been uh, their um, uh, lack of information about dogs that are, are dysplastic. Uh, many dog owners will have the radiographs taken then in the, in the veterinarian's office, they they will look at the radiograph, and if the dog is clearly dysplastic, they'll choose not to even submit it to OFA. And that's really doing a huge disservice to the breed as a whole. 
because uh, that's the really most valuable piece of information. But it's only valuable if it's uh, put into a scheme where that becomes available to everyone. And a, a, a beauty of the EBVs is if all the data are recorded in a database, um, then the, the algorithms that calculate EBVs take those uh, data points that are both good and bad uh, hip quality data points and into consideration in calculating an EBV. But when it's all said and done and the, the results are being reported, there's nothing that says the dogs with poor EBVs have to be reported uh, or out to the, the public per se. You just don't offer those dogs for breeding. But individual dog, dog owners know, well, this dog had a, a really uh, good EBV for hip quality. So that's one that I can promote as a, uh, a good breeding candidate and why. Uh, and if the EBV range is regularly reported, then everyone can see where that dog's EBV uh, lines up uh, along with all others but they don't have to know who are the bad dogs that uh, made this dog look so good. They just have to know that this dog looks really, really good. And so they, they can use the information without having specific individual knowledge of, uh, or specific knowledge of individual dogs that had poor hips. And I, I don't want to stop talking about hip EBVs, but I just want to take a second to ask. So what you're saying is that the IWDR provides the ability for people to upload information, which is useful in calculations, but which is not publicly displayed for others to see. Right, it does. And so the, the way IWDR is organized, the data are owned by the organizations who are the subscribers. And there's limited information available on all dogs in the database to anyone who is a subscriber. Uh, that information is mostly about who is this dog, who owns it, who are its parents. And our primary reason for doing that is to uh, provide information or to provide subscribers with enough information to avoid the entry of duplicates uh, duplicate records when they uh, start filling in the pedigrees of dogs that are currently available and they wish to go backward and say well this uh, Tom was the sire of this dog and so uh, does Tom already have a record in the database and they go searching for Tom we want them to have enough information available that they can find Tom so uh, that's our reason for making all that information available on all dogs, but it's very limited. And it's birth date and, and that kind of information, and, and it's primarily to enable identifying ancestors. So that's going to be an important thing for people who want to put their information into the IWDR and understand that not everybody can see everything about their dog, that they can upload sensitive information, and if they want to keep it private, they can. Correct, so to, yes. To make, to make that, to call that out, because um, I think that's going to be important to some listeners. Um, okay, so going back to the hip EBVs, so you have pulled together uh, different 
uh, hip assessment scores from different uh, parts of the world and have at least enough information about good and bad. Um, it has been challenging to get the bad, but enough information about the good and the bad to actually generate hip EBVs. And was this for just one particular breed of dog or multiple breeds? At the moment, we only have adequate information to do this on, uh, on uh, Labrador retrievers. Um, we're close to having enough information to do it on a small group of German Shepherds. Uh, those are the only two breeds that are so widely used in the guide and service dog world that um, it makes sense for doing all the work required to calculate EBVs. Um, we could do it on any breed that wanted to bring all the records they could assemble on a breed into the database. Um, and over time that might evolve. But at the moment, we only have uh, mostly records on Labradors and German Shepherds. Uh, some Golden Retrievers, and there are organizations uh, beginning to use Golden Retrievers in larger numbers that uh, will warrant calculating EBVs for some traits in Goldens as well. That's so down the many, road. how many dogs or what kind of a depth of pedigree do you need to be able to calculate a trait like that? Traditional pedigrees, if they go back three or four generations, are probably sufficient for tying together the information on, on uh, relatives through ancestors, uh, so it makes a meaningful EBV. Um, I've looked at some of the records in IWDR, and there are dogs in the database with pedigrees that go back to dogs that were alive in the 1930s. So we're looking at like 80, 90 years ago, those dogs were, were alive, and those are now like 20 generations back or 30 generations back. And uh, you don't need to go that far, but this organization had records already in their old database that went back that far. And so I'm not going to throw out records just because they're old. And they had hip data on those dogs that you no, could use? No, they didn't have hip data. But they're just ancestral pedigrees. They do contribute to uh, the accumulated inbreeding over generations. And uh, all those records are taken into account by the routines we use for calculating uh, levels of inbreeding. So they do play a role. Well, so if a breed club were to come to you and say they had a particular problem, a, a disease or something that they wanted to breed against, and they had um, some number of dogs where they had a depth of pedigree on the dogs and a depth, and, and but they'd also have to have, they'd have to know yes or no for that trait, right? Whether the dog had the disease or not. About how many dogs would you want them to hand to you with what sort of relatedness? Um, like if they were just to come to you and say, we want to do this and we have the money to pay you to do this, can you give me an order of magnitude? Just because I feel like people listening to this are going to be thinking, well, oh, my breed has this problem and I want to go to my breed club and talk about whether this can happen. Um, so what, what would you have to say to them? We would need records on in the ballpark of at least a thousand dogs to make it meaningful. And that would be a thousand related dogs. Uh, they don't have to be closely related necessarily, but they, they would need to be related. Um, if we're going to use traditional pedigree 
relationships as the the method for defining who's related to whom and their degree of relationship. Um, if they were uh, funded well and they wish to collect DNA and use SNP marker arrays, then an alternative is to define relationships among dogs using SNP marker arrays. Um, and that technology also exists and uh, is a, a capability of the software we're using for calculating EBVs. Uh, but in that case, they would be purely GBVs, genomic breeding values. Um, but it is possible to define the relationships based on DNA markers. And so uh, if they don't know who are the pedigrees, uh, although most purebred breed clubs would know the, the pedigrees, at least to the extent that no dogs jump the fence and uh, sired puppies uh, in the dark of night unknown to any humans. Um, that never happens. Yeah, right. So uh, a thousand dogs that are related uh, with most of those dogs being phenotyped for the, the trait of, of concern would be a number that we could start doing something with, I think. Um, but it would be really important to have the phenotype recorded on most all members of every litter where an affected dog occurs. It doesn't do any good to just know who are the affected dogs. We have to know who are the, the dogs that uh, are also normal. Yeah, for sure. So that, you know, in the case of uh, relatively late onset cancer um, that you wanted to breed away from, you would need to have a bunch of dogs in there that you had actually checked in and found out that the dogs had lived to 10 or 12 or whatever and died of something right. else. Right. There is technology in the animal breeding world to fit models that are known as survival models. Um, that's where the, the age of an animal to a, or, or the, the, the variable being analyzed is age of the dog at this point. And if you know the dog is uh, five years and three months old, you use that as its current, uh, we call that the dependent variable, but it, uh, it, it, it's, it's the variable being analyzed. And if the dog is still alive and known to be disease-free, then a, a censoring variable is added into the equations so that uh, you know the, the dog is, is still uh, uh, alive and healthy. But if the dog is, uh, is now diseased, you can code it as being diseased. Uh, and if it, uh, if it died uh, at some point, for reasons other than this disease, then it's a censored record. You just know that it was alive at that point, uh, but it died for some other reason, and you don't know what its status was. And so that becomes a, a less useful, but still uh, uh, a piece of information that can be used in the, in the modeling to identify the dogs uh, which are least likely to be affected by the disease and which if it's a an age limited something uh, like a cancer that generally is not seen uh, in dogs younger than six years of age like some of them are 
uh, then then you're looking for those that live to be 10 and 12 years of age and are cancer free but you can't afford to to wait until all dogs are that age to do your analysis so you have to do the analysis using the data that exists today and as new information comes into the database when you update it next week uh, things will change based on the addition of new information that accumulated over the intervening week and so those those procedures are all well known and and can be used and uh, again those can be done using either traditional pedigrees that define relationships or they can be done using SNP markers that define relationships or a third alternative is a hybrid where some dogs are known by standard pedigrees to be related while a smaller group of younger dogs usually are defined by uh, SNP marker relationships that uh, have been done on on the the more recent dogs. So you don't necessarily have to have DNA on all the old dogs in order to use their relationship information. Um, and the, this is all technology that's now being widely used in the dairy industry, for example, uh, worldwide actually. And the software we're using for doing the EBV calculations is exactly the same software that's being used in the dairy industry. Which is, the dairy industry has made amazing progress on things like uh, milk production uh, using exactly these technologies. So they are, you know, they, they are way ahead of us. And they've got these huge databases that are very similar in, in scope to, uh, or, or were when they were uh, a young database, uh, similar in scope to IWDR, but where IWDR now contains data on about 60,000 dogs. Uh, the, the dairy database uh, for the U.S., um, the last time I was aware of the number, which was uh, fairly recently, was a, a database holding records on 60 million dairy cows. So the orders of magnitude are a bit different. Yeah, that's what happens when you have uh, government support and government funding. Right. we have to deal with in the dog world is that we just do it on our own. Um, that's true, uh, although the beef industry is uh, a similar, uh, uh, is in a similar situation, but they have had very little, if any, government support. So it is possible uh, where it, uh, a, a group of animal owners decide it's worth working together uh, and that's really what IWDR is intended to promote, is collaboration among people who have uh, somewhat like-minded goals. And I think it's also important with respect to estimated breeding values to say that EBVs describe the germplasm that's available. Uh, they don't define what the goals of selection are. They simply describe the germplasm that's available for selection. So a dog that's right for an organization over here uh, with a particular objective does not necessarily become the right dog for an organization somewhere else in the world with a different objective. And I think people understand that, but they often think, well, I need the best the dogs with the best EBVs, well, best is in kind of like beauty, the eye of the beholder. And so uh, you, you have to, to know what your goals are before 
having the breeding values to describe the germplasm you wish to select uh, will really make any sense. Well, for sure. I mean, I think there, what is best for one group of people is not best for another group of people. So in terms of behavior, one group of people might want to select super independent dogs um, that can go work without a whole lot of handler intervention. And another group of people might want to select for super biddable dogs who are very attentive to their handlers, right? And so those could be the same trait going and just selecting in opposite directions, but they could still collaborate to build the EBV um, to assess the same trait. They would just be going in different directions with That's what they're looking for. That's yep. So, all right, so we talked about how a breed club theoretically or some group of purebred breeders could come and say, well, we have a bunch of dogs with or without this trait. We have to have both with and without. And we have pedigrees for a bunch of them. Um, and then we have maybe some dogs that are not as related to the other dogs, but we are willing to pay for um, doing a SNP chip, uh, so a genomic assessment on those dogs. So they could have sort of a mix of some closely related dogs by pedigree and some other dogs not as closely related, but um, assess their relationship with SNP chip and they could go and presumably um, get an EBV. So, which is fantastic. Uh, but then there's also the group of people who don't have dogs that are as closely related, right? So maybe they're not managing purebreds. Um, maybe they're managing mixed breeds or they're outcrossing a lot. So EBVs would be less useful for them, right? Um, yes, probably. But uh, EBVs are primarily a tool for capturing what's transmitted from parents to offspring in an additive genetic fashion. Um, and, and additive is kind of like compound interest. It accumulates over generations of selection. If crossbreeding is producing the, the animal that is of primary importance to your breeding program, then what you're capitalizing on in crossbreeding is restoring unique combinations of genes with every new cross. And you get the most diversity uh, in, in restoring those uh, genetic combinations by breeding two purebred parents of opposite breeds or of different breeds, not opposite, but different. So I know a common cross is the Labrador Retriever with the Golden Retriever. And if you go back 120 years, the, those two breeds were uh, diverged in the UK from common sources. So there is some common germplasm in those two, but uh, they look quite different today. And so if you're going to cross those two, you're doing that to capitalize on uh, the, the unique gene combinations that make goldens goldens and Labradors Labradors, but you're wanting one of each in the offspring. Uh, and to maximize that, you need to, to repeatedly breed purebred parents of, of different breeds to produce these F1 crossbred offspring. If you're going to move beyond the F1 and you want to use an F1 uh, female, for example, as a parent, now you have to decide how am I going to choose a mate for her? Uh, are you going to go back to a Labrador male 
Are you going to go back to a golden retriever male? Are you going to choose a male of a third breed? Or are you going to choose a male that also is an F1? If you choose an F1 male to be the mate of an F1 female, now you're producing what the geneticists would call F2 offspring. Um, and, and now you've, you've essentially blown apart the uh, unique combinations that you created in the first cross and now you've got a wide range of variation in the offspring that are going to produce some which are absolutely terrific, uh, others that are in the middle uh, with respect to whatever traits you think are important, and you're going to be producing some that are way less desirable than anything you ever wanted. So in, in terms of crossbreeding uh, or producing mixed breed dogs as a production scheme, generally people are going to settle on trying to find purebred parents of different breeds that produce the crosses, I think. Um, but some people may be focused on trying to produce a new breed by uh, doing repeated crosses of various schemes that produce a an animal with a phenotype that doesn't currently exist, and they call that a, a new breed, uh, like a Labradoodle or something like that. And they can do that, but those will be happening in such small numbers that estimated breeding values won't be of much help because you, you just can't get enough data on the, the a large enough population of dogs. and. I, th I think this is an opportunity to make a point about the forces that change gene frequency. Uh, gene frequency is, is what has to be changed if you're going to produce genetic change over time. And there are four forces that can change gene frequency. There's a mutation uh, and migration. Uh, and then uh, a, a third force is chance. And those three, really, humans don't have much control over. If mutations occur in the uh, genome of a sufficient number of dogs, and if that mutation is uh, advantageous in some way uh, through natural selection, then it will survive. But if it's not advantageous or it occurs only occasionally, then it's likely a mutation that just shows up and then it disappears and you may not even realize it's there or if it produces a really bad uh, phenotype you may understand that it's there but it doesn't have a selective advantage or it's not linked to something which has a selective advantage then mutation isn't uh, much of a force the, to be reckoned with in, in gene frequency or changing gene frequency. Migration is simply the process of bringing in uh, individuals to a, a population area that are completely unrelated and are from another part of the world but are of that same species. Uh, so the animals that are brought in have a different genetic makeup than the animals that are local. Um, it's somewhat a, a migration event when uh, Labrador retrievers from Europe that are uh, descendants of old lines that exist only in Europe are brought to the U.S. That's a migration event. 
and those dogs will likely come in with uh, gene ge genetic makeup that's different from the dogs that exist here in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> so mutation and migration are, are those two forces. Chance is simply the event that controls what happens in uh, meiosis as gametes are formed, and it's also in a, a, a component uh, when uh, uh, fertilization happens, which sperm actually was successful in uh, fertilizing an egg. Uh, so mutation, migration, and chance are the three forces that humans simply have very little control over. Um, uh, although migration to some extent they do if they choose to bring animals in. So the big force that can produce genetic change when it's used over time is selection. And selection will only be a force that can operate when you're uh, fortunate to have a large enough uh, population of breeding animals that you can overcome the, the effect of chance. Chance in a small population will be the overriding force that produces change in gene frequency. And you don't have any control over whether chance will produce animals you desire in the, uh, in the good direction, if you will, or animals that you deplore uh, that are in the bad direction. And so you, that, that's the primary reason you have to begin working together so you're working in a large enough population that you can overcome the effect of chance as a force changing gene frequency. Well, that's kind of related, <laughs> a related piece of information to your question, but uh, I think that's an important point that I hope I've adequately explained in a way that most breeders can understand. Yeah, for sure. So big populations make chance less powerful. And so genetic drift is the other thing I think that we would, and the other term we would use to describe Correct. that. Correct. Chance and genetic drift are the same thing. Yep. It's just if it, you have a small population and something happens by chance where you happen to lose some good versions of genes, it's such a small population, you don't have them anywhere else to replace. But if it's a big population, those small chance, you know, losses are buffered by having stuff elsewhere. That's correct. Yeah, so it sounds like, um, at least with F1s, um, if there were a large enough population of F1s, then it might be that EBVs could be built up. Um, but there are fewer of those first-generation crosses out there. Um, but, Not true. But something that could be interesting to, to look at for the future. And so there are techniques for calculating breeding values in, in crossbred populations that do take into account dominance, but dominance, genetic dominance, uh, is uh, has to be reconstituted with the creation of every new generation. Uh, it will be re, uh, reconstituted, and so it's not like additive genetic effects, which are regularly passed from parents to offspring. Um, and, and so that's, that's the reason most EBVs are done for purebred populations. You're capitalizing on accumulating genetic improvement generation over generation. So, But if people who were crossbreeding dogs 
were interested in using the IWDR, there's other benefits to it for them, even if EBVs were a ways off for them. Um, you talked about sure. some other ways in which it can actually help you manage your breeding program. Well, even if you are working with a, a breed without sufficient numbers for really using EBVs, at least IWDR offers the ability to, to record data from any place in the world using a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop or desktop, anything with a web browser. Um, and it will record those data and capture them uh, in a location uh, in the cloud, uh, the internet cloud that uh, ensures that once you've pressed enter and the uh, signals have gone from your device to the server, the server has it. So we've not yet experienced a, a, a time when uh, that failed to work. Um, sure, glitches can occur and, and things could happen, but generally the servers have been up when uh, a few weeks ago we had a storm here in uh, my part of the world that took out power for us for five days and the internet for seven. So we locally were unable to do anything, but others elsewhere in the in the world did not know that we were without power and had no internet connection. And the servers just kept running and they did their job and nothing uh, was uh, disrupted with IWDR because they live in a huge data center that's uh, powered by uh, backup generators and is uh, a protected uh, uh, location. Uh, it's, it's not even based in the US and so um, the servers just kept uh, doing their job and IWDR kept functioning. So, so reliability, very important. Re yeah, reliability and also the presence of backups. We, we make backups every day and uh, at the moment we've not yet exceeded our ability to store all the backups we've ever created. So we've actually got backups that go back for uh, a number of years. Uh, but um, uh, the other advantage of using IWDR is that the data will be uniformly coded. And so when you decide it's uh, desirable to do some summaries of those data, whether it's with EBVs or, or just looking at uh, the, the incidence of phenotypes and so forth, then the data are uniformly coded and were captured from the beginning uh, where summary analyses were uh, a part of uh, the the objective for storing the data to begin with. And I can't tell you how disappointing it is to find organizations who've built these record keeping systems where most of the data are captured as textual comments. And you can't believe how many different ways people can write Labrador Retriever uh, exhibited some undesirable behavior, uh, was um, afraid of tricycles or something. If you wanted to know how many dogs did we have that were Labrador retrievers afraid of tricycles, you would have to search through text recorded in a myriad of ways in order to find all the dogs that are Labrador retrievers afraid of tricycles. Well, that's not going to be a problem in IWDR because from the beginning, uh, IWDR captures most of its information in coded lists. 
and so the 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 presence of an attribute is noted in the records by a numeric code. It's not noted by the presence of free text that someone has typed into a, a comment box. And it provides, um, and so you have done all the thinking ahead of time of what all of those various pieces of information that someone might want to save about their breeding program is, right? All the different health traits, all the different behavior traits, as we said, there's behavioral assessments in there. Um, just all those different pieces of information. You don't have to set up your own plan for what information to save. It's just there. Uh, yes, although I would modify your statement just slightly by saying we probably don't have all the important health conditions for all dogs of the world. We have all the important ones for dogs that we are aware of and primarily the Labrador, German Shepherd, and and golden retriever populations. Uh, but if a, a different breed were to come into IWDR with things that don't currently exist in our coding schemes, of course, we would add those uh, so we could accommodate them. But they would be added by us into the coding scheme so that the text which describes a code would be uniformly recognized by all members of that breed club or group who wish to cooperate. And so the dogs would be uniformly coded um, as those records were being created for a particular uh, health condition, whatever that might be. Um, so are you interested in having new breeds coming into the IWDR at this point? Uh, yes, we're interested. Um, very much interested because uh, IWDR is intended to be a database that serves the canine breeding world. Um, so you have working, you have working in the name of it, but it's not actually really limited to working dogs, right? Uh, that's true. It's not really limited by uh, anything inherent in the database itself. Uh, but if we were to bring in a breed that's not considered a working breed, then there would be some additional work we would need to do to, to properly accommodate that breed and whatever are the unique things they record, particularly about aspects of behavior. And in those cases, uh, or in that case, a, uh, the behavior checklist probably would not meet their need. They probably already have something uh, developed for that breed that uh, we might need to uh, incorporate into our data entry scheme. Um, and I should also point out that if, it, if a breed already has an existing database that they want to continue using, we could, uh, we could help them uh, in the calculation of EBVs uh, if we work together to set up uh, a mechanism for uh, adding new information to the IWDR using what's known as an API call. Um, we are uh, in the process of building an, an API uh, or defining an API to uh, access records in the database for uh, validated subscribers. Um, and so new data could come into IWDR through an API call, which would not require 
making a major change to uh, a, a group of users who are already accustomed to using a, an existing database, but those data would come in then uh, in a way that would code them in the IWDR structure so that records captured in IWDR would still be uniformly coded. So we could think of an API call as a bridge so that you have two databases and there's the information that uh, a breed has been saving in their breed database for however many generations. And separately, there's the IWDR's database, and we can think of the API call as a bridge between the two so that the two databases can talk to each other, um, whereas the other alternative would be to sort of shut one database down and suck all its information into the IWDR, and that may not be what everybody wants, is what you said. Correct. Exactly. So, and so we've talked about uh, groups coming in and bringing large numbers of dogs in. And I guess my perception of what you've been saying is that if an individual breeder has an interest in the IWDR, they would need to come in through a group and not, not on their own. Am I right about that? Uh, yes, we've really built IWDR to accommodate a group of breeders uh, uh, as an organization. And uh, if we... Uh, if we were to change that um, that scheme, then we would have more work to do that we simply don't have time right now to try and uh, accommodate. So with your three people, yeah, with our three people. <clears throat> but if we had a group like that, then we'd certainly love to talk to them and and begin to get a feel for for what we could do for the group. Um, but a single breeder that's of a breed that we don't currently uh, already have in IWDR, we probably are not the right place for them to begin putting records uh, into uh, a database. Uh, there, there probably are other places. I, I know there's a an online system uh, out of Australia that at one point I saw had uh, uh, been. Uh, describing their database as having over a million records in, in the canine database. Uh, but it, it was a database for uh, organizing and displaying pedigrees. I think they probably did inbreeding calculations, but uh, I, I don't think they were doing the work that we're doing to, uh, to, to store health and behavior data in a uniformly coded scheme. Well, the Functional Dog Collaborative is all about collaborating and pulling people together into groups. So I'll, I'll leave that there and say maybe we could all talk more about that on the, the Facebook group. Um, well, is there anything else about the IWDR that you wanted to say, Eldon, that I have failed to ask you about? Not that I can think of. We've been talking I'm really thorough, right? for say over really an thorough. hour. I think you've been extremely thorough. I... Uh... I may think of something tomorrow that I didn't say, but uh, if I don't think of it until tomorrow, it's much less important than uh, what we're discussing today. So if people wanted to just go, is there a website they can go to to check out the IWDR and learn more? They're not going to be able to really see the full thing without being a subscriber, but um, where could they go to So see if you go to www.iwdr.org, uh, you will be at the website where IWDR is described. 
Um, if you click on the links that are in the uh, menu options that are in the upper right area of that home page screen, uh, you will find uh, a link for the IWDR manual. If you go to the IWDR manual, and I think it's chapter three, um, is a set of short videos that show you how to do various things in IWDR. If you watch some of those videos, you will get a, an immediate feel for what the data entry screens look like. Um, and you can listen to uh, Jane's description of how to accomplish a particular workflow task, whatever that might be, which is the focus of that video. I think the longest of her videos are 20 minutes, but most of them are five to seven minutes. So they're short uh, videos describing how to do various things. Then there's also uh, a collection of chapters uh, describing in text and with uh, screenshots how to use the IWDR. So you can gain a lot of understanding from that. And that would be a good place to begin getting a feel for what the database uh, looks like and how it functions. Fabulous. And and again, if there are groups who are interested in learning more about this, um, I think Eldon would encourage you to reach out to him, but I also would encourage you if you are not quite ready for that step to, to reach out to me, and I'm also happy to help talk to groups about what's right for them. That would be great, and uh, I, I really appreciate your being an ambassador for IWDR and uh, telling others about us. Um, I hope we can reach a point where many groups find IWDR to be useful and we can uh, create a community of users that uh, help improve the quality of dog breeding by producing much healthier dogs over generations of selection. Yeah, that's the goal and you have an incredible resource to help breeders do that. So. Yep. Thank you for making that be your passion project and, and putting this together in, in what should have been a blissful, relaxing retirement. Instead, this is what well, you I, I think <laughs> retirement is uh, a folly. I, I've decided retirement is a, a good way to prepare to die. I'm not quite ready for that yet. So <laughs> I'm, <for> you. <laughs> I'm having a good time working on this and uh, I uh, appreciate uh, so much the friendships that we've formed over many decades now working in the guide and service dog world. And I, I cherish the, the interaction with people who are of like-minded, uh, uh, who have like-minded goals. And uh, so my hat is off to all of them who uh, pursue the, the production of better puppies in successive generations as they go about doing the things they do to help produce dogs that help people. It is an amazing community, for sure. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again, Eldon. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Take care. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing the podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. 
You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinosa Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs. Enjoy your dogs.